We're going to read Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. It's printed in your bulletins. Uh, Please follow along as I read it aloud. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. A little bit of a strange passage, I think. During the month of December, we are uh, looking at the book of Ruth, and it's, it's really one of the most beautiful short stories uh, in Scripture and perhaps one of the most beautiful short stories just ever written. And uh, the reason why it's in the Bible is not simply to focus on this uh, one little family and what's going on in this family, but uh, one of the reasons it's in the Bible is because it's proclaiming a message about God's providence, that God is actively in control. He is carrying out his divine plan and purposes, even when it seems like he's not there even when it seems like he's hidden. And this is a story that focuses on uh, a woman named Naomi, and she experiences a lot of hardship in life. Uh, Her and her husband, Elimelech, they leave their home uh, in Bethlehem. They move to a place called Moab. And while in Moab, uh, they have two sons who marry Moabite women. And during the course of their lives, uh, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. And basically, she is now left uh, without any... Uh, of her own children. She has two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Ruth is the one who stays with her and pledges devotion to her. And uh, she's kind of brought to a place of emptiness, and she decides to leave Moab, return back to Bethlehem with nothing, essentially. Uh, Last week, we met uh, a new character, a man named Boaz. 
Uh, Ruth meets Boaz because she is gleaning in the field. Uh, to glean means to kind of basically pick up the ears of grain that were dropped after the harvesters dropped it. And the, as I said last week, the Mosaic Law prohibited anybody from picking up that grain so that uh, people who were poor, people who were orphans, people who were widowed could pick it up. And uh, you know, I thought about this. I didn't say this last week, but I thought that was a, it's a very interesting law in the Old Testament to do that because essentially what it's saying is uh, people have to limit their profits. So there's not like get as much profit as you want, but there's a limitation of profits in order to uh, help those who don't have much. But anyway, um, Ruth happens to uh, be gleaning in the field of Boaz, and that's how they connect. That's how they meet. And we find out Boaz is a pretty good guy. He's a pretty decent guy. And Ruth goes home, tells Naomi about Boaz, and this is where the story picks up. So that's just a summary of chapters 1 and 2, just in case you weren't here the last two weeks. Now, if you were following along as this passage was being read, you know, I don't know about you, but it it sounds a little bit strange. And maybe you're thinking, uh, what is going on here? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm missing some kind of uh, cultural context. But there are certain inferences here, and you're kind of saying, is is this what she's suggesting, or is, is she not suggesting this? Uh, is this something that is a little bit shady, or is this something that, you know, I'm completely missing the context of what's going on here? And, uh, you know, essentially Ruth, I mean, Naomi gives Ruth a plan, and the plan is not very good. She says to Ruth, go wash yourself, and then anoint yourself, which basically means put on some perfume so that you smell nice, go down to the threshing floor, watch where Boaz lies down. After he lies down, go to him, uncover his feet. What does that mean? And then lie down next to him. And the reason it probably wasn't a good plan is because I think it's a little bit to see and to understand the intentions of Ruth. Um, You know, as I was reading a few of the commentaries, you know, if you're not sure what to really make of this chapter, uh, I was reading a couple of commentaries, and they're not really sure what to make of this passage as well. You know, some scholars, they say, uh, this is is a shady plan. It's full of a lot of sexual innuendos. Uh, Other scholars say, no, there's not necessarily a sexual proposition going on here. And I think one of the reasons why it's a little bit ambiguous here is because the Hebrew is also a little bit ambiguous as well. Uh, It's filled with uh, something called double entendres. And double entendres are basically words that can potentially have two different meanings. And usually uh, in literature, you use a double entendre when you want to say something that's not really appropriate without directly saying it. So it could be something like an insult, it could be an insinuation, or it could be something sexual in nature. Uh, Shakespeare, if anybody was ever an English major, I think, used double entendre sometimes to add a little bit of humor to his stories and to his plays. And I was going to try to give you an example, but all the examples I found are really not appropriate to give in this sermon, which kind of reinforces the point of why uh, a lot of uh, writers might use double entendres And in this text, you know, for example, Naomi says, you know, uncover Boaz's feet and lie down. And you kind of scratch your head and you go, "Uh, what in the world does that mean? Does that literally mean uncover his feet? Or is that just kind of a way of saying something a little bit more, something a little bit more sexually charged? What are the intentions here? And I wonder if the narrator is actually doing this a little bit on purpose in order to emphasize something, to emphasize the fact that Naomi's plan wasn't a good plan. Because if we as readers are a little bit confused as to the intentions, then I'm sure Boaz would have potentially been confused as to Ruth's intentions. And I think it adds a little bit of ten- tension in the story because if, you know, if you're rooting for Ruth, you're like, oh, Ruth is such a great woman. Look what she did for Naomi. And then you read this, 
you kind of cringe and you, you kind of think in your head, you go, no, Ruth, right? Bad plan. Don't do it. Don't do it. Naomi's plan is not good. Uh, it's interesting in our culture, uh, we usually date casually at first before we even start thinking about the possibility of marriage. But, you know, in the ancient world, uh, you know, dating is kind of a more of a modern phenomenon. In the ancient world, they didn't have the same kind of practices of dating that we do. Uh, marriages probably were oftentimes arranged. And I think there was more practical reasons for getting married, more so than uh, simply romantic ones. And, <clears throat> you know, there are some cultures today even that practice it that way. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read this book by Aziz Ansari called Modern Romance, where he, uh, he teams up with a sociologist and he talks about just romance in the modern world, some of the frustrations uh, of dating in the modern world. And he looks at his parents' marriage, and their marriage was arranged, and he says, they've been married for X amount of years, and they look happy. And yet, what am I doing? I'm going on all the dating apps. I'm meeting tons of people, and I still can't find anybody. And, you know, we might be tempted to kind of think that this ancient culture of uh, getting married uh, is a little bit subpar, and the relationship between Boaz and Ruth doesn't seem like it has much romance in it. And therefore, it can't be like a genuine good relationship or a good marriage. But perhaps like Aziz Ansari, we should just be open to the fact that maybe, maybe they had it better. At the same time, you know, there are some similarities, I think, between ancient culture and our culture. For example, uh, if you are a person and you want to try to attract someone, right, you want somebody to approach you and maybe ask you out, take you out to dinner or something like that, uh, what, do you, what do you do? You probably will take a shower, right? Uh, you will probably put on like perfume or cologne or something to smell nice. Uh, you probably put on some nice clothes and uh, that's what you do if you want to attract somebody. And that's, that's essentially what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. And this might be a universal principle, but Uh, The worst thing to do if you want to attract somebody is to smell bad. And there's nothing more repelling than that. So it makes sense that Naomi tells Ruth, go take a bath, put on some perfume. And I'm sure people smelled more back then because, uh, you know, they didn't have access to some of the modern things that we do. But then, right, up to there, I think it's okay. But then what she says after is a little bit weird. Because even in our culture where, you know, people uh, will hook up all the time, I don't think anybody would even do what Naomi is suggesting here, which is go, watch where the person sleeps, lie down next to them, and then uncover their feet. That's just a little creepy, right? But Ruth, uh, she's not looking to even, right? She's not looking to hook up with Boaz. (laughs) She is looking for a husband, Right? If you are looking for just some kind of hookup, maybe, right, maybe you do what Naomi tells Ruth to do. Probably still you wouldn't do it, right? But if you are looking for a husband, if you want to draw a husband material, you don't want to come off as being sexually promiscuous. Now, let me also say this, by the way. Commentators will say, you know, the threshing floor where uh, Boaz was working, it was a place often that was uh, filled with illicit sexual behavior because men, they would work the fields, And then during winnowing time, they would go here and they would sleep on the threshing floor. And the reason for that is they want to guard their their harvest from either animals or thieves. And so as the men slept there, uh, the threshing floor would be a place that would draw prostitutes who would offer their services. And uh, if that is true, if that is the the context of the threshing floor, 
Naomi's plan looks even worse because there is a legitimate possibility that Boaz would mistake Ruth as one of the prostitutes, right? Eliciting sexual uh, services. You know, uh, do you remember the movie Hitch? Uh, there's a character played by Will Smith, and uh, <clears throat> he, he essentially helps men who are a little bit maybe not good with the ladies, men who are uh, a little awkward or just don't know how to talk to women, and he helps them uh, talk to women in such a way that they kind of like they fall in love. And so what he would do is he would do some research about the women. He would teach these men how to act smoothly, how to dance, how to talk to them so that they can attract the woman that they are essentially in love with. And there is this tension in the movie, in that movie Hitch, because the tension is this. Is Hitch simply just manipulating women into falling in love with these men? Or is he simply accentuating their good qualities so that the women can see how good these guys are, right? That's the tension in that movie. And the way you view and understand Hitch is basically determined by what? His motives. Is his motives to, to help men uh, find and attract women that they will treat well, that they will love, that they will care for? Or is his motive to really trick women into sleeping with these men? Uh, depending on how you interpret these motives determines how you interpret what he is doing. But if Hitch did it uh, because you know, he really believes these are good guys and they would make good husband material and they would treat these women well, then maybe it's not so bad, right? I think that's, that's the tension you see in the movie. I think there's actually a similar tension here because Naomi's intentions, they're not completely evil. They're not completely bad because she says in verse 1, my daughter, should I, know, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? And you see what she's saying. She's basically trying to help Ruth here because she understands, Ruth, you are a young woman still. Ruth, you are a young widow in the ancient world. You don't have much of a future unless you get married to a husband. And uh, maybe I would just, you know, I'm projecting here, but maybe Naomi feels a little bit bad because Ruth, she sacrificed so much in order to be with Naomi, in order to follow her to Bethlehem. And so Naomi, she just wants good things for Ruth. She wants to help Ruth. She wants to help Ruth find a husband. But you know what? Naomi is no Will Smith, right? Naomi is no Hitch. Uh, she is like the antithesis of Hitch. Uh, her plan is not good. There is a great risk of turning off somebody like Boaz if he were to ultimately misunderstand Ruth's intentions. Because if you want to marry somebody, well, what do you do? You, maybe you meet them at a coffee shop. Maybe you meet them at a nice restaurant. You don't meet them at this sleazy motel, right? That's just not a good plan. But that's kind of what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. Now, if Naomi's plan is poor, uh, what, is, what does the narrator want to highlight about this? I think uh, the narrator is highlighting two things. Uh, first thing uh, that's being highlighted is God's providence. And second, Boaz's integrity. Now, we talked a little bit about the theme and the idea of God's providence, which is essentially God's uh, activity uh, in uh, working out his divine purposes through these characters. And even Naomi's poor planning, uh, if you think about it, it's not enough to thwart God's ultimate plans. And that's probably something that we should reflect on a little bit more because maybe it'll help us uh, with our plans and when we have anxiety and stress about the plans of our lives. But here's what I want to do just for today. I want to actually focus on Boaz and his integrity. You know, this entire episode, I think, reveals Boaz to be a pretty good guy, uh, a man of integrity. You know, Ruth does as Naomi commands her to do. 
says at midnight, Boaz wakes up. He is startled, as I think anybody would be startled if you have this strange person sleeping next to you. And he says, who are you? And Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Uh, That's a little bit of a weird phrase, too. But when Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant, uh, what she's doing, she's basically saying to Boaz, marry me, right? Marry me. And uh, it's a, I know it's a strange way of asking that, but that's what she's doing. And even, uh, I mean, in that culture, that's, that's a bold thing to do. Uh, I think, you know, we live in a culture that's moving away from traditional gender stereotypes, but I would say still, even in our culture, if the, um, if the woman asked the man uh, to marry her, um, I think most people would still say, oh, that's not, that's not usual or normal in our culture. Maybe it will be in a few years, but... What Ruth is doing is pretty bold here, but that's not all she does that is bold. She, sa- she also says this, for you are a redeemer, okay? Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, in Jewish law, there is this thing called a redeemer, or uh, other translations call it a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is basically a family member who would protect the family and promote the fortunes and the the future of the family. And there are all these different kind of laws in the Old Testament in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about this role of kinsman redeemer. Uh, So to give you an example, a kinsman redeemer is uh, supposed to reclaim land or reclaim a field that may have been sold off uh, during a time of financial distress. And uh, just think about the ancient economy. Land is a precious commodity. There's a limit to land. Uh, We live in an economy where essentially you can generate wealth, so it's not exactly a zero-sum game. So if one person gets wealthy, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody else has to get poor. But in the ancient world, when you have such a limited uh, commodity of land, when one person gains land, that necessarily means another person has to lose it. And land is basically your your livelihood. Uh, If you have no land, then what do you do? How do you make a living? How do you uh, grow harvest? How do you eat? And things like that. So land was something that was very important. And if somebody kind of got into trouble financially and they said they got desperate and they said, I have to sell my land, a kinsman redeemer was somebody who was supposed to go and reclaim that land for the sake of the family and for the sake of their future. Now, as it relates to uh, our story today, another thing a kinsman redeemer would oftentimes do is if a, relative's, uh, if a relative were to die and leave a widow or leave any kind of dependence, a kinsman redeemer would go and would marry that widow so that this widow and any kind of dependents wouldn't be uh, destitute, wouldn't be poor, that they would be taken care of, that they would have a future. Right? Again, there's a disconnect with our culture because uh, if you marry right, a relative's spouse, that's like really strange for us. But in that kind of culture, it was meant to uh, protect the family and be um, the welfare of the, the future of the family. When Ruth says to Boaz, you are a redeemer, do you know what she's doing? She's reminding him, you have a duty, right? You have a duty according to Mosaic law. Uh, You are a redeemer, so in a sense, you have to marry me, right? (laughs) That is your duty as a kinsman redeemer. And we, we think, oh man, that's a terrible reason to get married because we value things like personal choice. We value things like passion and romantic love. And therefore, we're probably more suspicious of the viability of the relationship when it's, uh, it's not based on romantic love, but it's simply based on duty. 
But again, you have to understand this is a different cultural context, and they have a different understanding of marriage. And it wasn't mainly about personal choice and passion, but for them, it was about fulfilling one's duty. It was about covenant faithfulness. It was about uh, the family. It was about having kids uh, so that the family line would continue into the future. And Ruth's motivation to get married is not here necessarily even about personal fulfillment for her, although her life would turn out better if she were married. She wants to get married, I think, in order to serve Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, even though we may not initially see the beauty of that kind of marriage, that kind of hearts, it really is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful because what emerges is not this desire for personal fulfillment, but what emerges is a willingness for great personal sacrifice for the sake of another person. Now, how does Boaz respond to Ruth's bold statement? I don't think he responds the way any 21st century guy would respond. Uh, First, he pronounces blessing upon Ruth. Then uh, he gives her some assurance, right? Uh, If you've ever been in a relationship or if you know somebody in a relationship where, you know, the other person is not ready to take the next step uh, towards marriage, uh, you know how crazy it can drive you, right? Uh, In my experience... um, you know, let me just call out some of the men. Uh, in my experience, mostly men are the ones who are guilty of this uh, because they're often the ones who are afraid of uh, making a commitment. And what ends up happening is they, they string a girl along and uh, never give that girl a sense of security. And uh, it's just, it's not really good, right? Boaz, he has no intention of doing that, right? He basically says this, Ruth, you're right. I am your redeemer, I know it is my duty to marry you and to take care of you. Therefore, do not fear. But the next thing he says also shows the kind of man he is. He says, there is a redeemer nearer than I. What he's basically saying is, there is another man who is rightfully uh, next in line to marry you. Uh, Let's see if this guy redeems you. But if he doesn't, don't worry, because I will redeem you. I will marry you. And I think what this shows about Boaz is... Remember, this is a time where people are just kind of doing what is right in their own eyes. You have a man like Boaz, and he actually cares about doing what is right in God's eyes. He actually cares about following this Mosaic law of uh, fulfilling his role as redeemer and uh, doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And I think, what is that? I think that's ultimately integrity. We see Boaz's integrity. Uh, These days, it feels like, you know, people could use a little bit more of that, I think. Uh, the recent revelations about a lot of the sexual misconduct that's taking place amongst these public figures, uh, it shows us there are a lot of two-faced people, a lot of two-faced men in the world who lack integrity. They act one way in public. They present one kind of public persona, but then behind closed doors and private when nobody's looking, they act a completely different way. You know, a person of integrity is somebody who's going to be the same in public and the same in private. And who you are in private is probably a better reflection of who you actually are deep down in your heart. Most people will present themselves good in public. People with integrity will also be good even when nobody is looking. Where does integrity come from? I say this. I think it basically comes from a heart that lives in the fear of the Lord. It means being concerned about doing what is right in God's eyes knowing that God is there, God is everywhere, God cares about us doing right, I think that's where integrity comes from. Now, Boaz, he probably has an opportunity, right? Think about it. He probably has an opportunity to do whatever he wants. He has this woman lying down 
next to her. He has an opportunity to take advantage of her. He has an opportunity to shirk his responsibilities as a redeemer and basically say, I don't want that job. Give it to somebody else. He even has an opportunity to forget the family member who has first rights, essentially who is nearer than him to marry Ruth. But he doesn't take it. He doesn't take any of those opportunities because, again, he's a man of integrity who wants to do that which is right in God's eyes. Now, the chapter ends, right? This isn't the end of the story, but the chapter ends. I think the reader is left to kind of anticipate what is going to to happen with this relationship. Uh, But in the meantime, Boaz, he doesn't send Ruth back to Naomi empty-handed. Uh, If you remember chapter 1, Naomi is a woman who has been made empty. In verse 17, Boaz says to Ruth, uh, you must not go back to Naomi empty-handed. And I think that's a little bit of a play on words, and it's supposed to hint the fact that Naomi is not going to be empty forever, but she is eventually going to be filled. And in this story, Boaz is the one, he's going to be the one to be the redeemer and the very means or instrument that God uses to fill Naomi. And I think there are, there's just so many underlying gospel themes uh, that draw us into this story. Uh, you know, we talked about the role of, uh, of a kinsman redeemer. And a redeemer is somebody who's going to pay this heavy price for redemption, to redeem somebody. And it could be a financial debt. It could be marrying somebody's widows. But either way, it comes at a great sacrifice to the redeemer. I don't know if there's a a clearer picture of the gospel message of what Jesus Christ has done for us than this picture of a kinsman redeemer, right? Jesus is the ultimate redeemer who would show so much kindness, so much compassion, so much love as he redeems us from this debt that we have to pay created by our sin. Jesus is the one who brings us out of the depths of our own emptiness, gives us hope, for a new life. Jesus is the one who turns this bleak future that we have into one that is so glorious and filled with security because there is this future inheritance that is promised to us in Christ. Jesus is the one who would commit himself to us, foreigners, because of our sin and invite us and make us a part of his heavenly family. Just as a widow or a destitute family member would have no hope without a kinsman redeemer, you and I, we have no hope without a redeemer of our own. And the fact that Jesus would be our redeemer, the fact that he would be willing to pay the cost in order to be our redeemer, to die upon a cross, really is something that should astound us. But you know what else it should do? I think, it's, I, should, I think it should also um, surprise us. The reason I say that is this. Uh, this is a story, I think, that teaches a lot about love and the dynamics of love. And I was thinking about this story, and I was thinking about love, and I realized that you know, the kind of love that really means something to, to most people is uh, probably the kind of love that leaves us surprised. I was thinking about it in this story. You know what's really surprising? I think it's surprising that Boaz shows so much kindness and generosity to Ruth. I think it's really surprising that he would be willing to even marry her and to redeem her and Naomi's family. I think one of the great aspects of love is 
when it surprises us uh, because it comes so unexpected. When it surprises us and when it's unexpected, it means this, that there is simply no reason for it. It doesn't follow the conventions of logic. It doesn't analyze cost versus benefits. Real love loves without reason. And oftentimes that surprises us, right? You know, the God of love in Christ, I think it should surprise us. Think about, we think about why would Boaz treat and love Ruth in such a way. We have to think about why God would love and treat us in such a way. Why would he want to be in relationship with you and I when we are so empty and have nothing to offer? Why would he go so far as sacrificing his only begotten son upon a cross? Why would he receive us with joy in spite of everything that we have done? and everything that we are going to do here on earth? Why would he pronounce blessing upon us when we often curse him within our hearts? Why? There is no reason for that. It's kind of surprising, right? But I think all meaningful kinds of love is ultimately surprising. When we don't expect it, when we don't see a reason for it, when we don't uh, understand why someone could love. That kind of love touches our heart in a very special way. You know, praise God that it is this way because otherwise there would be no hope for any of us at all. Praise God for his love, his surprising love, his unexpected love that is poured out upon all of us. Let's pray together.